out all the way out from Chicago. It was a nice drive this morning with all the, the farmland in between here in the city and, and just to see your smiling faces again. You know, I um, told you a story about Gordy last week from our early years at Grace Church of DuPage and I feel like Ruthie felt left out. Okay, so just before we get into our study of the Word, I, I do have this one little remembrance of Ruthie when we first came to uh, Grace Church of DuPage almost 15 years ago now. Um, we had just arrived. I remember I told you this last week, Ruthie, and you didn't remember. We had just arrived, and uh, we were at a picnic with all the elders, and elders and elders' wives. And we were at the back of uh, Frank Yonke's house over in Wheaton when he still lived in Wheaton, and we were sitting across from Gordy and Ruthie, and we didn't know each other very well then, and we are trying to be friendly, get to know each other, and, and, and um, somebody had brought a fresh fruit salad. And within the salad were these fresh blueberries, which at the time I didn't like to eat, so I'd just kind of push them off to the side. And, and Ruthie kept eyeing them the whole time we were eating, and she just kept looking at them. And finally, with her sweet grin, you know, Ruthie's sweet grin that she always has, she said... Um, Tim, are you going to eat those blueberries? And I said, no, Ruthie, go ahead and have them. I didn't want them. I, you know, I wouldn't eat them. They'd just go in the trash. And she said, oh, I shouldn't have said that. You know, I shouldn't. Oh, no, go ahead, Ruth. No, I shouldn't have said it. Go ahead, Ruthie, have the blueberries. All right. So she takes the blueberries and I waited until she got the first one in her mouth. And I said, Ruthie, if I really would have wanted them, I wouldn't have spit them out. <laughs> and her eyes got this big for about five minutes. So there's my remembrance, first remembrance of Ruthie Bell. All right. Well, like I say, it's good to be back here with you this morning. Our text this morning is Psalm 90, and I'd like you to turn there. Psalm 90. It's a prayer of Moses, the man of God, which is the heading in the Hebrew. Psalm 90, as you're turning, I'm going to go ahead and start reading. It says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust and say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the evening, excuse me, in the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew toward evening. It fades and withers away. For we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury and we have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury, according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Do return, O Lord, how long will it be, and be sorry for your servants, O satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Let the favor of the Lord be upon us and confirm 
for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. Father, we thank you for this psalm that Moses wrote so many years ago, uh, teaching us and instructing his people, your people, uh, the people that he had been leading, how to make life count for eternity. And so, Lord, I, I just pray that as we learn from your word today, that you would stir in our hearts a, a sense that we need to be active every day, uh, taking the instruction from this psalm that every day from this day forward might be a day that we want to count for some value to you and some value in eternity, not just for the pleasures of life here on earth. And so, Lord, I pray that you would instruct our hearts. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open our eyes and our minds to what your, your living word is saying here. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. You know, yesterday, my dad, my dad right here is visiting from sunny, warm Southern California. They never have winter. It's kind of you have summer and almost summer in Southern California. That's what it, that's what it I grew up there. So that's what it is. And he reminded me that that spring is just around the corner here in Chile, Illinois. You know, it's two days away. Right. Doesn't it seem that time is flying when you think about that spring coming I thought, man, time is really flying. It seems like just yesterday I was anticipating the brand new year. How about you? It just goes by really fast. So I'm glad that we have the opportunity to look at Psalm 90 this morning because this Sunday, right before a milestone, the, the beginning of spring in our year, because some, Psalm 90 calls us to stop and consider just what we're doing with our days and how we're spending the time we have left here on earth. So teach us to what? To number our days. That is probably the most memorable line of this psalm. Perhaps you've heard these lines before, either at uh, a graduation or somebody's funeral. It's commonly a, a psalm that's read at funerals. I don't know if you've ever thought these thoughts. Perhaps you've prayed these words to God. God, teach me from this day forward to number my days. How many of you made a list of New Year's resolutions at the beginning of the year? How many people do that? Not many people do that anymore, right? How are you doing with your New Year's resolutions? <laughs> you guys don't make them because you don't want to fail, right? <laughs> right? I don't tend to make New Year's resolutions every year. Rather, God generally uses noteworthy uh, circumstances or events throughout the year to make me stop and consider just what I've been doing and what I ought to be doing and how I should live my life. Do you ever have those moments? I call them milestone moments. Do you ever have those? These moments where God gets your attention for some reason and it makes you ponder life a little bit more, reflect on life and consider where you ought to be going. This past year, I had several milestone moments in my life. One in particularly was my in particular was my 50th birthday. I can no longer deny that I'm middle aged. <laughs> I can no longer deny that I'm halfway through my journey here on earth. I'm no longer a young man. I went bowling yesterday and my knee hurts this morning. All right. It's it's one of those things, those milestone moments. Another milestone moment for uh, me last year was the arrival of my first grandchild. As I held her in my arms and I, I looked down at her little face, all of a sudden, 24 years 
went by in a flash because it was like looking at my oldest daughter, her mother, once again there in my arms. And as I, as I reflected on how fast 24 years can go, it caused me to consider how much more quickly the time I have left on earth will pass. I don't know about you, but every year seems to go by much faster than the year before, doesn't it? Every week seems to go by much faster than the year before. My heart's desire is to have every remaining day of the next 50 years. I'm planning on living to 100 at least, okay? So every, every day for the next 50 years count more for eternity than any day in the past 50 years of my life. Now, I trust God brings and has probably brought milestone moments in your lives. I hope you recognize them. I hope when he does that you take time to stop and reflect upon them. It might be a brief moment when the chime of life's clock can no longer be hidden in the background of your daily routine and and strikes with such clarity that you can no longer ignore the brevity of life before you. Or it may be a day when you feel torn by the frailty of your sinful heart or weighed down by some sinful deed, the guilt of that that you have done in the past. And you wonder if you could ever hear from God, well done, my good and faithful servant. Or it may be for some of you that are coming upon the final season of life, That you look back over the spring and summer and fall of your service to God and and you begin to question what value He could ever find in the stuff that you've done for Him. You might wonder what service you could possibly be to Him now because your hands are becoming weak or your mind is growing weary or your strength is fading. You know, Psalm 90 was written to help God's people with issues like these in their lives. Sin that you might think would keep you from having a valuable service to God, days that are shortening down and you don't think that you have much time remaining to serve God, things like that. It was written to help us sort through these things. It was written by Moses, it says right here, verse 1, look at there, it says, the man of God, apparently at a milestone moment in his life and in the life of Israel. The setting that I have studied through this seems to be later in Moses' years, toward the end of the time that he had spent leading all of those people through the wilderness, so 40 years of wilderness wanderings. I say that because, look at verses 7 through 11. This psalm, that, that right at the heart of this psalm, seems to be a poignant portrayal of those final days as the entire generation of people whom God had led out of Israel are now dying in the wilderness because God has forbidden them to go into the promised land. You can hear it, you can just hear this poignancy in Moses' voice. Look at verse 9. All our, all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a, what? Like a sigh. Like a sigh. That's not the way I want to go out. Is that the way you want to go out? Just finishing your years like a sigh? You know, it must have been a heart-rending sight for Moses to see that whole generation of people that he had lived with 
and that he had loved and that he had led through this wilderness now just melt away like ice on the hot summer sand. Spurgeon said that Moses lived among funerals in these days. A whole generation is now dying. He lived among funerals. And he was overwhelmed at the terrible results of the divine displeasure. Some think that Moses may have written this psalm in response to Numbers 20. I don't know if you remember Numbers 20. You should. You've been reading through the Old Testament. I love this that you guys are reading through the Old Testament. You've been right there. You should remember the events of Numbers 20. They're clearly a milestone moment for Moses. You see, it opens with the death of his sister, Miriam. And that chapter closes with the death of his brother, Aaron, Israel's high priest. Now, no doubt the death of these two dear loved ones would have sent the sting of death deep into Moses' heart. No doubt their deaths may have been the impetus for Moses to reflect on life the way he did in this psalm. But there's another event in Numbers 20 that adds a significant element to a milestone moment for Moses. It was the moment that God told Moses, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. This is the man that has led them. Can you imagine what that must have sounded like to Moses? Do you remember what led up to that event? Do you remember what led up to Moses being told he could not lead Israel into the land? Once more, there was no water for the people. Once more, the people grumbled. Once more, Moses sought God's help. And once more, God told Moses to bring water from the rock. Only this time, he said, don't strike the rock as before. What? Speak to it. Speak to it. But Moses lost his temper at the grumbling Israelites. And in a moment of impatience, he struck the rock. He struck it. And that moment became a milestone moment for Moses. For while God graciously poured forth an abundance of water from the rock... He also righteously judged Moses and barred him from leading the remainder of the people into the promised land. Now, you have to picture this for a moment, okay? Moses was almost 120 years old at this time. Forty years earlier, God had called him to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go and deliver all Israel from their bondage to a foreign king with the promise of going into their own land, but the people didn't trust God. And so God said that generation that would not trust would not go in. And so for almost four decades, Moses had been waiting patiently day after day for the very day when he could finally accomplish what God had called him to do. The one thing in his life God had called him to do. And in a moment of impatience, the opportunity was gone. Do you think you'd remember that day? 
I think Moses did. Can you imagine anything that would leave you sensing more futility about your life and ministry than an event like that? Many people would have lived out their remaining days with a sense of defeat or a spirit of bitterness. Many people would have turned away from God, feeling sorry for themselves. God, why do you do that to me? I mean, for 40 years I have been faithfully leading these people, and for one mistake, you're going to do that? Not Moses, the man of God. Instead, he turned to God and called upon God to help him lead Israel faithfully for all the rest of his life. That's what this psalm is about. That's what this psalm is about. You don't find Moses bitter. You don't find Moses feeling sorry for himself under some bush in the wilderness. You find Moses saying, God, teach me to number my days. Teach us to number our days. So that when we finally cross the the real Jordan into heaven, we might come in with hearts of wisdom. Right? The psalm is not a poem. It's a prayer. And the kernel of Moses' prayer is found in the request he brings before God. Verse 12, it begins and it ends in verse 17. So teach us to number our days that we may present or gain or usher in to you a heart of wisdom. And then the last phrase is so significant. And confirm the work of our hands, Lord. Confirm the work of our hands. Whatever we've done, we want to hear you say, well done. Well done. Teach us to number our days. An old, an old Englishman once said, of all arithmetical rules, this is the hardest to learn. <laughs> to number our days. You know, we, we, we learn the rules of addition, subtraction, multiplication, algebra, neo-algebra, you know, all this stuff, Right? He said men can number their herds and their droves of oxen and sheep and they can estimate the revenues of their manors and farms. They can, with little pains, they can tell you how much money they have in their pocket. Yet they are persuaded that days of our lives are infinite. You ever live like that? You ever think like that? Well, tomorrow is tomorrow. Next week, I have plenty of time. And so we never begin to number our days. Teach us to number our days. This does not mean sitting down with the actuarial tables and calculating the average number of years that people now live and then somehow coming up with an estimate of the number of days that you have left, you might have left on the earth. Rather, it means that we measure each day by the work God has for us to do. Do you hear that? It means that we take stock of each day and we measure it by the work that God has for us to do. And we consider each moment what we might accomplish that will have some eternal value to God. So Moses' prayer is essentially this. We realize that we don't have many days left. Forty years, this generation is going to perish. Moses is going to perish before they can go in. And time is marching on. Moses has realized that the gap is no longer that long. 
And so we want them to count God. We want them to count for eternity, not just for the brevity of life we have remaining on earth. We want them to count for eternity. And so we want to live them according to your wisdom, not according to our foolishness anymore. We don't want to be foolish, Lord, and strike the rock again. We want to be wise. We want to have hearts of wisdom. So teach us, Lord. Teach us how. Now, this is Moses' personal prayer request. It's also his, his desire for all the people that he's leading in the land. And it's my hope for each of us this morning that we would go out from here committed to ask God this same thing each and every day. Not go out of here and forget, but go out of here and ask God each and every day, not only this week, but for the rest of our lives. How do we make each day count for eternity? That's the question. How do you make each day count for eternity? Well, for Moses' prayer here, I'd like to offer you three important considerations. Three fundamental truths which we must embrace and live by. Let me give them to you, and then I'll give them to you again as we go through, okay? First, God must be our highest aspiration. That's what verses 1 and 2 remind us. God must be our highest aspiration. Secondly, great will be our earthly limitations in verses 3 through 11. And then grace must be our daily request. The end of the psalm. Look at verses 1 and 2. Is it hot in here to anybody but just me? It's warm in here this morning, isn't it? Do you mind if I take my coat off? Is that, is that allowed? Is that okay? All right. You know, when you wear camel hair, it just gets hotter and hotter underneath the camel. So, Look at verses 1 and 2, if you will. I want to read them again. It says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, why does Moses say this? Why does he begin this prayer with these words. After all, it might just seem like Captain Obvious for me to say God must be our highest aspiration, right? It seems pretty obvious that the people of God should always aspire or strive after nothing higher than who? God Himself. But if we're honest with ourselves this morning, we would have to admit that even though we know this is how we should think theologically, It is not how most of us live practically each and every day. Many Bible-believing Christians still have their minds set primarily on earthly things rather than what? Things above. It's the opposite of what Paul says. Set your mind on what? Things above, not things on the earth. But the fact is that most of us live with our minds set on earthly things, not things above. And so we live as if eternity in heaven is something like God's consolation prize for all the dashed dreams that we have experienced here on earth. Oh, well, someday I'll get to heaven. You know, someday I'll get to be with God. And that's my reward for this life that I've had to trudge through all these years. You know, it seems that Moses recognized this same propensity in the people of his day. Remember, after 40 years of wandering with not only Moses, but God, God was with them in the wilderness. Remember that? The pillar, the cloud, right? 
After 40 years of being with God like that, the people were still what? Grumbling. They were still grumbling. They were still grumbling about the conditions in the wilderness. And from an earthly perspective, we might understand why. After all, they'd spent 40 years wandering aimlessly, not, where, not knowing where they're going, not knowing when they're going to get there, not knowing what tomorrow might bring, right? Through a hot, dry desert, and now countless numbers of them are dying without ever stepping foot on the lush green land that God had promised to give them. But Moses sees things from a heavenly perspective. And he knew that after 40 long years, too many of God's people still had their eyes fixed on the sand beneath their feet, rather on God who had been with them every step of the way. Does that describe your life? At all. My wife calls it having your nose too close to your bootstraps. You know. We look down so much that we never see that God is right there. And I believe Moses is writing this not as a consolation, but as an exhortation to get their eyes fixed on things above. God, you have been our dwelling place for all generations. All generations. Those are not simply comforting words for a dying generation. What do I mean by that? Well, oh, Israel, you haven't really lost out because you can't go into the wilderness because God has always been our home. No, that's not what Moses is really getting at. These words communicate a fundamental truth about God that all the people of God in every generation must learn to embrace. You and I must learn to embrace this if we want our days to count for eternity, that God is our eternal home. Not here. Not the place that you're going to go when you get out of this place and go back to this week. God is our eternal home. My home. No matter where I roam, right? God is our eternal home. We must begin with this truth. Do you remember Abraham? This is a truth that... that that, that was so fundamental in the opening books of the Bible. God was Abraham's highest aspiration, wasn't he? Wasn't he? God called him out of Ur. And he told him he's going to take him to a land. And God takes him to the land, shows him the land, and then what? Has him move on. Abraham never did build a house in that land, did he? Rather, he continued to send tent pegs into the sand and pull them up. Tent pegs into the sand and pull them up. He continued to be a wanderer all his life. But that was okay with Abraham. You know how we know? Because the writer of Hebrews tells us he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is who? God, not a man. God. Remember Isaac? Abraham's son, and Jacob, Abraham's grandson, they never built a home in that land either. Yet that was all right because God was their eternal dwelling place. This is not just the truth for past generations, Moses says. Look at what it says, verse 2. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In other words, this truth does not change from one generation to another. As Christians in America, the prize is not a nation that will all be Christians as much as we want to think that. That's not the prize. 
That's not what we're after. We want to see people come to Christ. We would love to live in a nation like that. That's not the ultimate goal. In fact, remember Jesus? Remember what he told an eager follower who wanted to follow after him? The foxes have what? Holes. They've got a house. The birds have nests. They have a house. But the Son of Man has what? Nowhere to lay his head. The Son of God on earth? And he doesn't have a house? No, he didn't. Why? That's a great image for us that that's not what we're after. Our highest aspiration is living with God himself. Can I ask you before we move on, do you share Moses' high aspiration? Have you set your sights on your eternal dwelling with God? Or are you continually busy, bothered, focusing your hopes and your goals and your efforts on temporal things that someday will perish. It's a hard thing, isn't it? It's a hard thing to get our mind off of what we are doing here on earth and keep it on God. Perhaps you started out well. Perhaps when you first became a Christian, you said, I'm going to live every day for Christ. Perhaps when you went to college, you said, I want my career to count more than just success or money. I want, I want it to count for God. But somewhere along the way, your aspirations have changed. What kind of goals have you set for 2006? We're coming three months into the year. We're going to evaluate today. Okay, what kind of goals have you set? When you go home today, will you look around and really consider whether eternity with God is truly your highest aspiration? If we want to make every day count for eternity, eternity with God cannot simply be the consolation prize for our frustrated hopes and dreams. Rather, He must be the highest aspiration every day. And I'm not saying, by the way, I'm not saying it's wrong for us to have earthly aspirations of any kind. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. Don't get this wrong, okay? After all, many of the Israelites did go into the land, right? They did build houses. They did start businesses as well. God even set up a physical kingdom, right? But that physical kingdom is not the end goal. In fact, it's not even there today. And those things... A career, a family, a place to live. They're all good things as long as they do not supplant God. And so we must, God must be our highest aspiration. Let me give you another one. I'm going to try and hurry a little bit faster through this. Great will be our earthly limitations. Great will be our earthly limitations. One of the greatest obstacles to thinking our life can count anything for eternity is that we don't have long to live on this earth. If you get what I mean, how can anything that I do in this much time count for what? This much time and that much time. Where no time exists, right? It just seems like the value structure is off, right? The brevity of life is one of the great obstacles that keeps us from living for eternity. The brevity of life. Whatever we do is so soon forgotten. Look what he says in verse 3. You turn man back into dust. You ever think about that? You're going to be just dust in 50 years, right? Not, not you kids, right? <laughs> but us gray hairs, some of us, right? 
And you say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning, they're like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew. Towards evening, it fades away and withers. Look at verse 10. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow and soon it is gone and we fly away. Compared to God's eternity, His eternal existence from everlasting to everlasting, your God, He has already said, compared to that, all of life, human life, is short. It's short. How can anything I do in this life really count? We're like, Moses says, the grass which sprouts up from the morning dew, but then withers from the heat in the afternoon. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen that. With our drought conditions, you do get to see it sometimes. I grew up in Southern California where the spring rains would suddenly green up the brown hills with all the grass that was growing. And that would happen in May, but by June, the hills are what? They're just brown again very quickly. Spurgeon said, we're not cedars or oaks. <laughs> we're not these stately bushes or we're not these stately trees, but we're grass, which is vigorous in the spring, but lasts not a summer through. Here's the history of grass, Spurgeon said. Sown, grown, blown, moan, God. Gone, excuse me. Sown, blown, grown, moan, God. That's your life. That's the history of man. How great a change in such a short time. The morning sees the blooming, the evening sees the withering. You know, even if you could live as long as Methuselah, how long did Methuselah live? 969 years. Your life on earth would still be considered short when compared to God. Because for God, a whole thousand years is like what? A watch in the night. It's like yesterday gone by. A thousand years. Again, Spurgeon said, that's a long stretch of time. How much is crowded into a thousand years? He said, empires rise and fall. There's the glory and the obliteration of dynasties. The beginning and end of elaborate systems of human philosophy. We, what we think today isn't even the way they thought back then. Countless events, all important to your household but which elude the pins of historians. Do you know that the truth is that most of our lives will not even count as a footnote in the annals of history? So the question seems to be this. How on earth, how could anything we do on earth have lasting implications? But that's not the bad news. He goes on to give you the bad news because how could, it, how could anything so short, have lasting value to God? Well, here's the bad news. It's not just the brevity of life. The frailty of man is the other one. The frailty of man. Moses knew that the reason so many people were dying here in the wilderness, he says, was because the judgment of God was upon them for their what? Their sin. Their sin. And it's not just this generation. It's the sin of all generations. He says, we have been consumed by your anger and your wrath. We have been dismayed. You placed our, our iniquities before you and our secret sins in the light of your presence. And we have declined in your fury. We've finished our days like a sigh. Here's the ultimate obstacle for having your life count for God. Your sin. Your sin. The frailty of man, not just the brevity of your life, the frailty of man. Whatever sinful men accomplish falls short of what? God's approval. 
Now, many people read this psalm that we've got before us and they hear these words and they go, wow, what a downer. (laughs) What a downer. The brevity of life. The frailty of man. Whatever we do is going to so soon be forgotten after we're dead. Whatever we do falls short of God's approval. How could we ever expect anything we do to have lasting value to God? Well, listen to Moses. Moses prays for an outpouring of God's grace for everything that he will think and do and accomplish each day. Look at verses 12 through 17. We're going to have great earthly limitations, but grace must be our daily request. So teach us to number our days, he says, so that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Do return, O Lord. How long will it be? Be sorry for your servants and satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness. That's the word hesed. That's the word mercy or grace in the Old Testament here. The the same root comes from it. And that we may sing for joy and be glad all our lives. Make us glad according to the days you've afflicted us in the years we've seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, he concludes. God, we need your favor so that our the work of our hands can be confirmed. Now, I think that grace is the kernel of thought in Moses' request. The two main sentences are your loving kindness returning and let your favor be upon us. And Moses knew, and I want you to notice this. I want you to notice just as we go through this because we can't go through every word here, all right? I want you to notice the powerful effects that God's grace would have in the lives of God's people. The first is in verse 14. The daily satisfaction of my heart. Look what he says. Verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness so that we may sing for joy and be glad all our lives. Now, Moses knew that this wasn't a small request, you know. The people of God had spent most of their days in the wilderness grumbling about things. We have no water, Moses. That's Monday, all right? We don't have any food, Moses. That's Tuesday, right? We don't like that manna that God has given us from heaven. That's Wednesday, right? Right? 